The NBA right now is in the second round of playoffs. On Friday night, the Portland Trailblazers defeated the Denver Nuggets after four periods of regulation and four periods of overtime. After the game, C.J. McCollum was interviewed after arguably outplaying every other player on the court that night. He was obviously exhausted, and he was asked the following question. How will you recover from this game and prepare yourself for another game in just 48 hours? And his answer was, I live for this. It struck me. It struck me in light of what I had been studying and preparing to preach this morning. That's a fairly common phrase that you would hear people say, I live for fill in the blank. What do you live for? How would you fill in that blank this morning? And not what do I wish I lived for or what do I think I should live for, but a more self-examining question. What do I actually live for right now? What, What consumes your thoughts? Is it something? Is it Someone, is it you, is it a goal, is it a dream? What consumes your thoughts? What consumes your time? What consumes your affections? What do you live for? Do you live for playing basketball? What a result that produces if you're C.J. McCollum. But if that's really what you live for, that's tragic. So Paul will speak to this in our text today. His concern is that we all live undividedly devoted to Jesus. It's a very tall, impossible order. But his concern is that every one of us as professing Christians, that we would live undividedly devoted to Jesus. And few do. Few do. So let's open up with prayer today, remembering what a big deal it is to listen to the Word of God read and to listen to the Word of God preached and to all think about and consider what it would mean for our lives so that we could honor God more and live more undividedly devoted than we are now. So please bow your heads with me. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us your holy word so that we may know you and love you and please you. We ask, God, that you would fill us with your spirit now so that we would grasp truth and have our hearts filled with gratitude and adoration for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 7. If you're using one of our church Bibles, you will find today's text on page 898. I would encourage you, if possible, if there's not already a child there, to plop your Bible in your lap. That's where it belongs and I was thinking it's quite silly to have it closed up and within reaching distance when we're reading it together and listening to the preaching of it. So if you have a Bible, please open your Bible 
to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And again, if you're using one of our church Bibles, we'll be in page 898. A little review here in chapter 7. The first 16 verses of this chapter, Paul gave personally practical instructions to the Corinthians. He told married believers not to deprive one another and never to divorce one another. He told single believers to consider remaining single. And he told new believers married to unbelievers not to abandon and divorce their spouses. Then, this was last week, in verses 17 through 24, Paul passed along a a general rule or a guiding principle that would help the Corinthians and would help us to follow his instructions. And it was this. Do not seek to change or control your circumstances. Rather, glorify God in your circumstances by remembering who you belong to, who is in control, and who is with you. And that brings us to the rest of the verses in this chapter, verses 25 through 40, which we will take in two parts this week and God willing next week. And in this section, we will see that Paul does two things in verses 25 through 40. Number one, first, he returns to more practical instruction. And second, he makes clear the deep concern behind it. So he's given practical instruction already. There is more practical instruction in this final section. And he is going to make clear the deep concern he has behind his instructions. So let's begin this morning with Paul's deep concern. In other words, his instructions have a concern behind them. His instructions are aimed at something. They are not arbitrary. He loves the Corinthians. He is burdened for them. And so he does not give selfish instruction or aimless instruction. It is out of a deep concern for them because he loves them that he gives these instructions. My wife, Kristen, instructs our children to clean up after themselves. I've noticed it's a regular instruction in our home. And if they don't follow that instruction, then she gives them more instructions. And her instructions are not given arbitrarily. And she does not give them these instructions to clean up after themselves so that she would have less to do around the house. That's not her goal. Because she loves them, there is a deep concern behind those instructions. It's not arbitrary. It's not to make her life easier. She instructs them to clean up after themselves because she has a deep concern that our five boys and one girl would each grow up to be responsible. It's a deep concern, and it is behind her instructions. Well, Paul, he loves these Corinthians. They're family to him. They're his brothers and sisters, and so... Behind his instruction to them is a deep concern. He states it explicitly in verse 35, which is technically not included in the verses we're studying today, but it's going to be good for us to look ahead and grab it and keep this burden of Paul in mind. So look at verse 35 with me. I say this, that is, the practical instructions before and the instructions after. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you. In other words, these instructions are for your good. And then here is Paul's deep concern. 
but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Paul is writing and instructing to secure something. That is his burden. Deep in Paul's heart is a desire that the Corinthians would be undividedly devoted to Jesus. Paul's deep concern is that the Corinthians would live for Jesus and nothing or no one else. That if the Corinthians were asked what they live for, that they would each honestly answer, I live for Christ. That is Paul's deep concern. Not that they would say, I live for my job, or I live for my happiness, or I live for sports, or I live for family, but rather, I live for Christ. He's talking about undivided devotion to Jesus. That is the concern of Paul's heart. That they would sell out for Christ. That they would use whatever freedoms they have to serve Jesus more wholeheartedly. That they would see their life and their lot, whatever it is, as a tool in their hand. And it would be a tool to be used for God's glory and nothing or no one else. What is your deep concern for those you love? Is it not the same? What is your deep concern for those that you love? Is it not the same that they would be undividedly devoted to Jesus? I mean, think about those people that you love what could every single one of your prayers for them be boiled down to? Is it not this? That they would be undividedly devoted to Jesus. What truly worries you about them? When you give instructions or counsel, if it is that kind of relationship, what is your target? What is your goal? What is your strike zone, is it not their undivided devotion to Jesus? And if so, if that is your deep concern for those you love, your closest friends, your spouse, your family, your friends, your fellow church members, if that is your deepest concern, does it actually drive what you do and say? Or is there a disconnect? If your deep concern is like Paul for those you love, that they would be undividedly devoted to Jesus, does that concern drive like it did for Paul? Does it drive what you do? Does it drive what you say? Does it drive the decisions you make? Does it determine and influence how you relate to those you love? This deep concern for them? That concern for undivided devotion to Jesus is a good and pure anxiety. And it was the driving force behind Paul's prayers for and instructions to the Corinthians. So, with that deep and abiding concern, he returns to practical instruction at the beginning of our text this morning. So back up and look now at verse 25. Very practical instruction here. You will see quickly who this first bit of practical instruction was for. It was for those who were betrothed, which is a particular group that Paul has not yet addressed in this letter. Those who were betrothed were those who were committed to 
marry one another. It was like engagement today, only more serious. Each had taken themselves off the playing field. They had committed themselves to spending the rest of their lives with one another, and they were now in a season of intense preparation for a wedding, and even more importantly, for marriage. That's what it meant to be betrothed. So here's what Paul says to those betrothed, those engaged couples in verses 25 and following. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. And now here's his counsel. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. This is not a command from the Lord, Paul says. Jesus did not speak directly to this scenario, but Paul gives his judgment. And as he points out, his opinion should be taken very seriously. After all, he is one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. In other words, Jesus had made Paul a reliable, faithful, and trustworthy source of sound advice. So they should take it seriously. His advice is this, verse 26. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. In other words, it is good for those who are engaged to remain engaged. He's not saying call off the wedding. Verse 27, are you bound to a wife? And that word there is a synonym for betrothal. Do not seek to be free. He's saying don't call off the wedding. Then he says this in the second half of verse 27. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. In other words, if you're not in a committed relationship preparing for marriage, don't get into one. That's his practical advice. But remember... This is all counsel from Paul. He qualified it, right? This is not a command. This is counsel from Paul. And so he gives this concession in verse 28. But if you do marry, in other words, this is my counsel, but if you decide that you're going to get married, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet, those who marry will have worldly troubles and I would spare you that. He'll say more about that trouble in verses 32 through 34. It's God willing, we'll look at next week. So Paul's counsel is that those who were engaged should remain engaged. They should apparently indefinitely postpone their wedding. Why? That is unusual counsel. Why does he give him that counsel? Why doesn't he say, I mean, take the time to prepare for your wedding and take the time to prepare for your marriage, but then hurry up and get married. But rather, he says, my opinion is that you should postpone this wedding. Well, the key to understanding this counsel is found in the context. Paul gives this direction. And some of you are already ahead of me. He gave this direction, didn't he? In view of something unique to the Corinthian experience. Verse 26. In view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. So this isn't Paul's advice for everyone who is engaged. This is Paul's advice for the Corinthians in view of a present distress. So this word distress means crisis or calamity. It means an unusually difficult 
circumstance. Whatever this crisis was, it was clear to the Corinthians because Paul didn't need to say anything else. But it's less clear to us. We can only speculate what this present distress was. It may have been a famine that was taking place at the time that we know about. Food was scarce. And so maybe getting married and marriage often comes with children. That would be greater responsibility, greater difficulty. Maybe he's referring to the famine. It may have been that he was thinking about the beginnings of sharp persecution against Christians, which was beginning to break out at this time. Maybe Paul sensed or knew that that persecution as it did was only going to intensify for the next 15 years and culminate with the destruction of Jerusalem. After all, Jesus spoke about that in Luke chapter 21. Maybe Paul has those words of Jesus that are ringing in his ears. There in verse 23, this is what Jesus said. Alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, for there will be great distress upon the earth and wrath against this people. They will fall by the edge of the sword and be led captive among all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Paul may believe that that time is near. And that may be the present distress. At the end of the day, we simply do not know what this present distress was. What we do know is that this stress was significant enough for Paul to recommend the postponement of weddings. During World War II, many men were drafted and then called to war. And I'm sure that many of them were engaged to be married. That was their present distress that they were being called off to war. And in light of it, I'm sure that many couples pause to consider whether or not it might be wise to postpone a wedding. I think that's the sort of thing Paul is talking about here. As the saying goes, when high seas are raging, it is no time to change ships. So he gives them this advice. So here's his practical instruction in these first few verses. It wouldn't be for all of them. It wouldn't be for all of us. It was for those who were in committed relationships heading toward marriage. And it was for those who were thinking about getting into committed relationships. And Paul was saying, let me summarize, in light of your current circumstances, my advice is that those of you who are single, stay single. If you're not in a committed relationship, do not pursue one. Verse 27. And if you are engaged, consider postponing the wedding. So there's more practical instruction. In our final verses, verses 29 through 31. But these words are for all the believers in Corinth. Not just the betrothed. And just like the previous verses, there is an, a contextual key that will help us to understand Paul. The key to understanding Paul's instruction to the betrothed was the present distress. And there are a couple of keys to help us understand this set of instructions. We find them at the beginning of these words and at the end. So in verse 29, Paul says, this is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. And then in verse 31, Paul says, For the present form of this world is passing away. Those are the two contextual keys. That's what was going on. That's what Paul has in mind when he gives these instructions that we're going to read. So let's make sure we understand. Let's take them one at a time. First, Paul said the appointed time has grown very short. Generally speaking, I think Paul is referring here to the brevity of life. Life is short. Life is fleeting. 
Now, this was true for them, and it is, of course, true for us. Your life could be cut short at any moment. Some of you may know or expect that your life is winding down and you are near the end of your life. Others may think you have decades to live and you may have days to live. That is a reality. Each of our lives could be cut short at any moment. And even if it's not, for those of you who are young, even if it's not cut short, and you live to be a hundred years old. My understanding is that looking back, you will feel as if that century passed very quickly. Life is fleeting. The appointed time is very, very short. And you're not guaranteed tomorrow. James 4.14 You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist or a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Here one minute, gone the next. The brevity of life. It could also be that Paul was remembering other words of Jesus. Words that push us to prepare for His return, knowing that Jesus could return at any moment. And perhaps the persecution that was breaking out around Paul created an even greater sense of urgency in his heart. Listen to these words of Jesus. Luke 21, 34-36. This is Jesus saying the same kinds of things that Paul is saying here. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life. And that day, that is the last day, come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. This is Jesus pleading for a sense of urgency in His followers. There is a day coming. And that day is either your death, Or it is the return of Jesus. And you do not know at what moment either of those things is going to happen. And so Jesus' counsel is to watch yourself. To watch yourself. That day will come upon you like a trap. He said, do not let your hearts be weighed down with the cares of this life. He speaks metaphorically, stay awake at all times. Don't drift off spiritually. Don't fall asleep spiritually. Then Paul writes in Romans 13, 11 through 12. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep for Salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. Isn't that true for every single one of us? Salvation is nearer now than it was when you first believed. You are another day closer. You are another moment closer to seeing Jesus face to face. To being in paradise with Him. Every day, every moment we end closer. He goes on. The night is far gone. The day is at hand. So then, let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. 
What is Paul saying in Romans 13? What was Jesus saying in Luke chapter 21? What was James saying in chapter 4? And what is the context in 1 Corinthians 7? The appointed time has grown very short. Time is short. That's the first piece of context. And now second, what he says at the end is, the present form of this world is passing away. Not this world is passing away. This world will be made new into a new earth. And we as believers will live with God forever in the new heavens and the new earth. But the present form of this world is temporary. It is passing away, Paul writes. He's referring to the fact that this world and everything in it except the Word of God and the souls of men is temporary. Everything. Think about that. Everything. Every possession. Every relationship. Every accomplishment. Everything, everything in this world, save the word of God, it will endure. And the souls of men, they will endure. Everything else, it's temporary. Nothing else is permanent. It will not last. I mean, before we even get to Paul's instruction here, for those of us that are really thinking about this, it already is having implications on how we're living and what we're saying and what we're doing. Some of you already are questioning what you did this morning or what you did yesterday or how you spent your time last week or what you're going to do in this week to come when you begin to wrap your mind around and engage with the fact that time is short. You don't know how much time you have. You may have 24 hours. You may have 24 years. You may have another 50 years. Who knows? Only God knows. And this present world, everything in it except the Word of God and the souls of men, it's temporary. It's not permanent. None of it is going to last. You can't take any of it with you. The present form of this world is passing away. So what does that mean for how I live my life? What's Paul's deep concern? Why is he saying this? That you be undividedly devoted to Jesus and nothing and no one else. Friends, none of this is going with you. No money is going with you. No possessions are going with you. No accomplishments are going with you. No diplomas are going with you. No cars are going with you. No houses. Nothing. And now with that context in mind, time is short. And this world is passing away. Listen to Paul's instruction for us all. And remember his deep concern. That we would be undividedly devoted to Jesus. Let's just read these verses. And then we'll look more closely. Verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short from now on. Let those who have wives live as though they had none. And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. Let me summarize what Paul is saying. In light of the reality that time is short and this world is passing away for your own good and for the glory of God, all believers 
must live in undivided devotion to the Lord. And what Paul is doing in these verses is showing us what that looks like. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to live undividedly devoted to Jesus. This is what it looks like to live as if, because it is, life is short. This is what it looks like to live as if this present world is passing away. It looks like this. For those who have wives, to live as though they had none. For those who mourn as though they were not even mourning. As those who rejoice as though they we're not rejoicing. Those who buy as though they had no goods. Those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. Does, does your life look like this? That's the question to ask as we go through it. Does my life look like this? Is this how I live? Do you hold the things of this world tightly or lightly? This is his point. How tightly do you hold on to the things of this world, the good and the bad? How fierce is your grip on everything other than Jesus? What do you live for? Who do you live for? It's all getting at the same thing. So in conclusion, let's read through these and consider them briefly. We'll look at these again next week. Especially this first one regarding marriage, husbands and wives, because he's going to explain some of this in the verses to come. But let's consider them briefly. And as we do, we'd be smart if we would think about our own lives. So here, there's five practical instructions here or five things of this world that can steal our devotion. That's what he's getting at. These are five things that can very easily, Christian, they can steal your devotion. These aren't all bad things. But they should not steal our devotion to Jesus. So number one, let those who have wives live as though they had none. This doesn't mean, husbands, you buy a second house or that you start sleeping in separate bedrooms or that you tell your wife she's walking home today. But I mean, what does this mean? There's definitely hyperbole and some exaggeration in these verses. Paul is setting out to make a point. But again, he's after undivided devotion to Jesus. In other words, nothing else gets the devotion that Jesus gets, including good things, including here, I would say the best thing in this life, which would be my wife. Let those who have wives live as though they had None. Paul's talking about marriage. He's talking about family. He's talking about relationships. Again, he's going to elaborate, but suffice to say, even the best and greatest of human relationships better never ever be a replacement for Jesus. Oh, Jesus spoke to this too. And also said something that you'd hear and think, well, he can't mean that. Do you remember? Luke chapter 14, 26, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Jesus says, you better be a wife hater. You better be a child hater. You better be a life hater. You better hate your life. You better hate your children. You better hate your wife. What is he saying? Does he mean that you wish the bad for these people that you love and care about? Of course not. Does he mean that they are your enemies? Of course not. This is what Jesus is saying. He knows you rightly love and are devoted to these people. But your devotion to them 
it has to pale in comparison to your devotion to Jesus. My wife is wonderful and she is the best. And in my opinion, there is no greater wife ever. But she did not die for my sin. And so when it comes to human relationships, including my children, there is no one that I am more devoted to than Kristen. But I cannot and must not be more devoted to her than I am to Christ. Now that's much easier said than done. I feel like a failure at that most of the time. I very easily and ashamedly love the people in my life more than I love Jesus. Practically, subjectively, but the call is that I must love Jesus more. Let those who mourn as though they were not mourning. He's thinking of trials. He's thinking of difficulty. He's thinking of adversity. He's thinking of the loss that we experience in this life. Real pain and real loss that leads to real mourning. But he's saying, be careful that you don't hold too tightly onto the things of this world. What did you think was going to happen? This world is passing away. Everything in this world is temporary. So you're going to experience loss and it's going to be real loss and it's going to be painful loss. But do not be so devoted to those things that you lose that when you mourn and it's right to mourn that you're totally consumed by your mourning. That it takes you over. Some of you have real experience that brings you mourning and some struggle with just mourning all the time. Discouraged all the time. Depressed all the time. Prone to self-pity. Many of us. Prone to see the good, the bad, not the good. Prone to see what's not going well. What we wish was different. What we're unhappy about. What we're upset about. We're prone to jealousy out of this morning. And prone to envy out of this morning. And prone to complaining out of this morning. And that should be a wake-up call. That this is an area where we are prone to self-pity and looking only inward. And while there is a season for mourning, we must not be consumed by it. This life is temporary. The appointed time is short. Don't waste your life. Soon you're going to die and you will be in paradise forever. And there will be no tears. And you'll look back at every affliction in this life and you will say and feel like it was momentary. Like it was just a second, like it was just a blip on the timeline of eternity. And you will be consumed then in the presence of God, worshiping Him, in love with Him, not thinking about anything else, not mourning anything else, not a tear in your eye, not a tear in anyone else's eye. So He says, now in this life, with eternity in your sights, let those who mourn live as though they were not mourning. Hold the things of this life lightly. Number three, let those who rejoice live as though they were not rejoicing. There are things in this life that lead to rejoicing and happiness. He's not talking about rejoicing in the Lord here. He's talking about this temporal life. Enjoyment or pleasure that leads to rejoicing and joy that you might experience in this world that is passing away. He says, do not hold too tightly to those things that you're rejoicing in. They may be gone tomorrow. And they will pale in comparison again to what you will be rejoicing in in the life to come. So let those who rejoice live as though they were not rejoicing. I mean, this is good, much of it. And this is to be enjoyed, much of it. But this is nothing 
compared to what's coming. Undivided devotion to Jesus. Number four, let those who buy live as though they had no goods. What a temptation this is. For 21st century Americans. I don't know. I suspect that no one in the history of the world on this massive scale has had as many possessions as we have. I, I suspect that's probably a true statement. That this is unprecedented. I mean, just about every single one of you right now, if you think about something that you want to buy this afternoon, if it's reasonably priced, right? I'm talking about like a ski boat or a new house. or. But most of you, like if you think right now, I want a cheeseburger this afternoon and I don't want to cook it. I want a teenager to cook it. And I just want to drive up to a window and I just want to shout at him and I want him to give it to me. And then I want to eat it in my car while I'm driving to my air-conditioned house. Like for most of you, that's ridiculous, but that's a reality, right? And even if you don't have the money, you have a credit card and you've got one that's not maxed out and if you wanted that cheeseburger, you could get that cheeseburger this afternoon. So, I mean, we, we have the ability, right, to just to buy goods. Let those who buy, and no one buys like we buy, live as though they had no goods. You know the saying, do you possess these things or do these things possess you? If you buy that cheeseburger and it tastes horrible, are you good? If you buy that car and it blows up, are you good? If you pay for the vacation and you get there and it's a dump, are you good? If you buy these things, if you invest in these things and it doesn't turn out the way you want and it doesn't go as planned, what does that do to you? How does that affect you? Why are you working? Why are you making money? There are good reasons to work. There are good reasons to make money. Is it just to buy stuff that at the end of the day will possess you? I have a friend and he has a boat and he was talking to another friend this past week and he was telling his friend what he loves about having his boat and what he loves about having his boat is seeing the looks on the faces of the kids, right? When they get in the boat, and they're smiling and laughing and getting in and out and jumping off into the lake and swimming and being pulled on the inner tube. And he just loves it. And his friend who has a boat looks at him and says, I would never let my kids on my boat. That's two different worldviews, right? One possesses things and the other has things that possess him. What is he getting at? Do not hold tightly to the things of this world. These are things that so easily steal our devotion to Christ. Finally, number five. Let those who deal with the world live as though they had no dealings with it. Let me read you two other translations that I thought were better, or more clear, I should say. The New International Version says, those who use the things of the world as if not engrossed in them, for this world in its present form is passing away. Or the New King James Version says, and those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. So whether it's, it's a summary statement, isn't it? Whether it's important relationships, whether it's the mourning, whether it's the joy, the rejoicing, whether it is the goods, the things that you buy or your possessions, 
those are things for you to leverage. Those are things for you to use. And you can use them or misuse them. You can use them or abuse them. What they are for, anything and everything in this world, is the glory of God. Anything and everything, it is ultimately for the glory of God. And if you can't somehow tie it back to the glory of God, that's a problem. We misuse according to the New King James Version. We, according to the NIV, we get engrossed in the stuff rather than using the things of the world, leveraging them for the glory of God and the good of others. John Calvin wrote this. The sum is this, that the mind of a Christian ought not to be taken up with earthly things or to rest in them, for we ought to live as if we were every moment about to depart from this life. You see lives lived like that. And it just puts you in the dust. We read about lives lived like this who live as though they could depart from this life at any moment. He goes on, All things that are connected with the enjoyment of the present life are sacred gifts of God, but we pollute them when we abuse them. If the reason is asked, we shall find it to be this, that we always dream of continuance in the world. This is what Paul's getting at. Like this is just going to keep going forever. We always dream of continuance in the world for it is owing to this that those things which ought to be helps in passing through it become hindrances to hold us fast. And finally, John writes in 1 John 2, 15-17, Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, well, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. Are you pouring your life into that which is temporary or pouring your life into that which is eternal? Are you making idols out of the things of this world? Are you living for Christ? Is your devotion to Him undivided? If it's not, what needs to be adjusted? 